Everyone, welcome to episode 109 of the Lift Free Diet Hard Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Coates, and I get to welcome back Jill Coleman to the show. This is actually Jill's fourth appearance lifetime, I think, on the show. Is it really? I was trying to remember. You go with Sohi a while back, too. Oh, yeah. That was fun. And we were just talking off air about how we're going to actually get to meet for the first time in person at Raise the Bar, which we're both speaking at in February 24th through the 26th. And that is one hell of a lineup. So we're going to plug that in a little bit too. And I'm hoping by now, yeah, I hope everybody knows who Jill is, but if you're not super familiar, uh, you're one of the more prominent uh, business mentors in our industry. You've been around, you've, you've been teaching and educating people, training people for a very long time. And you are the founder of Moderation 365 and a lot of other cool stuff. So it's great to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. I always love jamming. My pleasure. So we we started to talk a little off air and I said, all right, let's do this on air. Uh, you, you mentioned how, you know, there's been a lot of changes the last few years, obviously with the pandemic mm-hmm. and saw a lot of people forced, forced online or embraced it. A lot of people pushed out of the industry entirely. And I'm also reading a book right now called Build for Tomorrow. And it challenges this sort of identity, this box that we put ourselves in as the trainer or some of the other things that we do. And I want to see what your thoughts about that are, because I think coaches get very fixed in terms of how they define themselves and what they think they can do. So do you think it's important for us to maybe not get too boxed in as the quote trainer, the in-person trainer, and maybe think in terms of a broader way to define what we do to help people and maybe more as entrepreneurs. So have the floor. Totally. I love that concept. And, you know, I think one of the things that you learn quickly, and I understand why people attach so strongly to the identity of trainer, because that's where you get your reps, right? So I was a personal trainer for over a decade, uh, working probably 70 to 80 hours a week in the gym. And I loved it. And I think that oftentimes we get into it because we want to help people and we have our own transformation of some kind. Um, But for me, after 12 years of 4 a.m. and split shift and getting home at nine o'clock at night, um, I really wanted to do something that reached more people. And so that's when I started Jillfit in 2010. But I think up until that point, I treated my business like like I was a trainer, right? So I was like, oh yeah, now I have an online business. So I'm just going to be a trainer online. And what I failed to miss uh, or I failed to see was that I needed a different skill set if I wanted to have a successful business. And, you know, I think there are plenty of probably studios or maybe gyms that teach their uh, coaches or trainers or group fitness instructors, like how to maybe sell their services. But I, when I was coming up, that wasn't a big thing. And so, and I, I hated the, the the idea of sales, right? I was like, I just want to help people. I just want to get people results. Uh, but what I saw when I started my entrepreneurship journey was that actually, if I got better at sales, I could help more people. And I think that's like the misconception, right? Is like they're, they're antagonistic. In my experience, the better you get at selling and and the more people you're able to serve through those services, the better everyone becomes. And so, yeah, I think it's easy to, to box yourself in because that's where your reps are. So maybe you don't identify as I'm a business owner or I'm an entrepreneur or I have a digital business or I'm like, you know, a lot of my clients are like, I'm trying to get them to say that they're a digital CEO. That's a totally different skill set. And if you don't have reps there yet, you won't identify that, right? So even, you know, my clients who've been with me for a couple of years now doing business coaching, you know, they still will say I'm a personal trainer, even though they haven't maybe trained on the gym floor for a couple of years. Uh, a lot of people jumped on the pandemic. That was really interesting to see. And they sort of just went gym to Zoom, 
right? Which is like the 1.0 version, but then like, okay, the ones who are now becoming more successful in this virtual space are the ones who have adapted and really kind of took on the idea that like, oh, I don't know how to do marketing. I don't know how to do sales, copywriting, content creation. You know, it's a totally different skill set. And so the ones who have really dove into it and engaged in those things are now staying online and making so much more money than they ever were in the gym. I, I see you as part of a, a generation of trainers that were online coaching before online coaching was the thing, right? You, get you didn't know what it was. Like, I was just like, oh, really? Someone give me money from who don't, doesn't live here? It, it ended up being people who knew me in person, but maybe moved away. Or I knew from a previous version of my life somewhere, you know? So it wasn't like this big, it definitely is so different now. And there, there's this cluster. And I, and I sort of, I, I'll say this in the presentation I'm going to do, but I remember coming up as a trainer because I started my career in 2010. So I've been doing this a little over 12 years. And I remember reading a lot of Teen Nation who I now yep. write oh, yeah. like the weirdest. So surreal, cool. But, you know, one of the things I love the most, and I would read a lot of people like Tony Gentlecore, Dean Somerset, uh, the, the, John Romanello. Those are very sure. long these people. And along the way, you come across these other figures in the industry who are successful, who are known as educators, Dr. Jade Tata. And yourself. Yep. Yep. And and you guys were sort of this unique cluster of people who were doing that online coaching and had these established brands. And for a trainer like me, it definitely felt like, okay, well, there's there's us versus them. There's all of us on, on the gym floor. Yep. And there's this group of insiders who are very successful, educating everybody. And I didn't understand the path in between. Yep. Now I do. But yep. Do you think that what you guys did back then, because I think to a degree, you kind of learned it from that community, Molly Galbraith being another good example of someone yep. who's in Are we seeing that just that path is just now more accessible and available to a larger group of trainers? Or is there something fundamentally different about how trainers now are building their businesses versus the way that I think your mm -hmm. uh, more niche community did, you know, over, well, 12 plus years ago. Yeah. You know, what's really interesting about that was I actually got my introduction to quote unquote digital business from someone not in the fitness space. It was in 2010, I went to my very first conference and it was Brendan Burchard. And uh, Brendan Burchard, is a, he's a big name now in the kind of the personal development sort of productivity space. But back then he was just a, an internet marketer. And I remember going to, I think I had, someone had a free ticket. And so I was like, well, I don't know what this is. So I'm going to go to it. And my mind was just completely opened to what it could look like. And so I think, you know, we say that it wasn't really out there. It was, but it was in different pockets. It was an internet marketing space. It was in the business space. It wasn't in the fitness space so much. So you ended up seeing like the people I was aspiring to when I was on the gym floor were models, fitness models, cover models, uh, competitors, right? Those are the only people we saw who had visibility, who had influence. And so some of my earliest mentors were Jamie Eason and Monica Brandt and some of these like old school figure. Now they're old school, but back then they were, you know, on the Olympus stage. And so I remember, and then you had small pockets like Alan and Rachel Cosgrove, who I've mentioned probably on this uh, show before, being some of my earliest mentors, and Rachel being kind of a complete 180 from that space. I remember looking for a mentor when I didn't know how to scale this thing. So I just moved online. I started doing online coaching, which is essentially still time for money, right? So I was like, well, I can't take these people in the gym, so maybe I can train them online. So I was getting home from the gym at night at like nine o'clock, and I was writing programs until like one in the morning. And then... 
I was like, how do I scale this thing? And when I looked around our space at that time, you mentioned a good amount of uh, male trainers. And I was like, where are the women that I can aspire to have a the similar business? And I was like, I don't want to learn from a fitness model. I was sort of done with the competitor space. And also having done it for many years, I was on like seven magazine covers. I'm like, I didn't get paid. I wasn't like, that wasn't, it wasn't, it was mostly about ego pursuits, which was great. And it gave me a lot of clout early in my career. But looking around and going like, who has the the lifestyle business that I want, the digital business? Who's making a huge impact? And it was Rachel. At the time, she had a book. She was writing for Women's Health. She had a column in Women's Health. Um, and you know, she had a business with her husband, who I was married at the time too. So that was really appealing. And I was like, oh, she's an example of someone who has a business or has the success, quote unquote, success in the fitness industry I want. I reached out to her. I didn't know if she did coaching. And I just said, do you do business coaching? You know, I would love to work with you. And she said, well, how about we just do a call? And for 30 minutes, it'll be $375. And as like a personal trader back then, I was getting paid like 35 bucks for 30 minutes, right? So I was like, what? Like, how is that even a number you're saying out loud, right? Like, how are you even charging that? And I remember having this moment of like, oh, I can't afford that, right? And then I just said, if she can charge $375 for 30 minutes, I need to figure out how I can do that. And I've PayPal'd her the money, got on a call. It was great. Learned a bunch. And at the end, she pitched me on their mastermind and it was $10,000. And I was like, is she crazy? Like, cause that those numbers get thrown around so much more now, but this is back in 2011. I was like, that's a car, you know, $10,000. I didn't have a credit card that went up to that as a limit. And so I actually launched one of my very first business slash fitness programs in order to make the money to then pay Rachel. And so it was interesting to look back and go, wow, her mentorship was paying off before I even invested, right? Like it forced me to to come up with a solution in my business to now scale a group offer. Because at that point I was just doing one-on-one. So looking back at that, it's really interesting to look at the trajectory of that. So when I, you know, Molly and I, I think we connected in like 2012, 2013, Girls Gone Strong was sort of coming up. And it was interesting because Girls Gone Strong did an article and it was sort of a roundup and it was myself and it was some of the co-founders of Girls Gone Strong. And they said, a day in the life of a fitness professional. And at this point I was full-time online. And so were, it was like Jen Comis and like some of these other people. And so most of us were full-time online at that time. So our day in the life was like, wake up, drink coffee, you know, write a post on Facebook, blog. There was a massive backlash from in-person trainers, like massive backlash of people saying, how are these people representing fitness professionals? Like all of them just seem to have all the time in the world. Where's the, you know, where's the 4 a.m. wake up calls? Where's the split shifts? Valid, right? Totally valid. But what they failed to see was that we already did all that, right? Like we got to the point where we made different decisions and it was scary. You know, I took a I took a pay cut to go online. And so a lot of people at that point, it was so new that seeing something like that really was it definitely pissed off a lot of in-person trainers. And that was an interesting experience for me. And this must have been like 2012. It's amazing that this sort of thing was fucking controversial back then. And now it's very much the norm. Yep. Well, you know, here's what I see. And I'm wondering if you see this too, Andrew, see a lot of people sort of romanticizing like online business or online coaching or having an online personal brand. And a lot of people are not getting the reps in the gym. They're literally getting their certification like last month. And then they're going, well, let me see if I can just do it online. 
And these people really struggle uh, from my experience. They really struggle because they don't have the confidence that a, a trainer does. You know, a trainer who's been in the trenches for years, you have gotten so many reps, you've run so many sessions, you've worked with so many different types of people. They really struggle with their confidence and imposter syndrome and things like that online because they don't have the evidence that they're good yet. And so I always recommend people start in person. Like you can build your online brand as you are you as you're getting your reps, but you got to get in front of bodies. Like you go to go to a box jam, you get like 12 clients this week, right? You'll get paid dog shit, but at least you're getting the reps and you're starting to see how it works. And like you're getting the clients that are tough and you're working through a lot of that stuff. Then online, you're like, oh, I can do this because now I have a show of evidence that I'm a good trainer. And so those are the people I see that struggle the most who just hop online right after they get their cert. I think there's a couple things with that. One, I mean, the last few years, there was a period of time where you couldn't train in person. Depending on where you were geographically, that time was fairly extended. We always have people wanting to enter the space. So I think it's much more normalized now to learn personal training as more of the hybrid model than it was back then. And I, I you didn't, but I do hear other people sort of use very gatekeepy language to say, oh, you have to train a minimum of five years in person before you've earned the right to go online. That's crap. That That's no old school longer, thinking. That's old school yeah, thinking. It, it, it's gatekeeping. And it doesn't do anything positive because the people coming up now, because social media is so much more a part of what we're all doing, that they're just going to tune that message out. And then they're going to find the, 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 the sleazier types who are adjacent to our industry who promote teaching people big ticket online training stuff. And they're going to scoop those people up and they're going to do it in a way that probably lacks integrity. Mm. There's the other side of it. We also have, and again, I don't like complaining about quote fitness influencers because I don't think there's anything positive about it, but we have people who built image-based social media who aren't actually traditionally coaches who then turn around and start offering some sort of product who don't have the in-person experience and probably mm. never would. Now they're really not a part of our community, but I think there's more blurring of the lines in the eyes of a lot of trainers. And I, I think- Or in the eyes of a lot of consumers, right? I mean, I'd be interested in your take on on just like, I don't know, the market uh, sort of figuring out who's qualified and who's not. And you're absolutely right because the market ultimately will look at these people and, hey, they're here's what they look like. I want to look like that. And that corner tends to be fairly good at the marketing side. And unfortunately, it's a bit of caveat emptor, buyer beware in that I I, I try to encourage trainers- to lean more into, if, if, if it's authentic to them, a more of a forward-facing brand, build their media, do the long-form content, but actually have a strong social media presence. I've literally been laying out the playbook the last few years as I've done it. And instead of complaining about what the influencers are doing, half the time they, their followings are fake anyway, instead build it for real, be better, don't be negative, don't be bitter about it, don't complain about what they're doing, do such an, an appealing job with your media that people will literally line up at your doorstep. And, and that's my preferred approach to this sort of thing. Mm -hmm, because like, mm -hmm. We get into this low hanging fruit of just whining about what other people are doing. And it's such a waste of time, isn't it? I mean, and I, I get it because I remember feeling that way too, like looking at someone who I deemed, especially early in my career when I was, I was definitely more susceptible to sort of the comparison trap 
I would be like that person not even certified or like that person, you know, doesn't even have clients like and it's just or or that person just naturally thin and they just have that body like, you know, there's a million ways to police the space. And I do think ultimately I've sort of gotten to this place where I feel like the market will because here's the deal. Imagine if a customer sees an influencer online loves the way they look, loves the way they show up, loves their personality, whatever it is, wants to invest with them. Who are we to be like, you shouldn't invest with that person? You know, this person feels a genuine connection to this person. I feel like the way social media is now, it's less about followers and more about connection, which I like. I like that we're moving in that direction that the potential customer is not looking for. And I tell my clients all the time, because, you know, I work with a lot of um, my business clients are more like, I would say 35 to 55 uh, mostly moms. These are this is their second career. Often, you know, maybe they had something else, or their kids are now in school and they want to do this more full time. And so they always wonder, like, I don't have the look, or I don't have that like super like sexy what like whatever you feel like you need to have to, on the on a visible platform. And I'm like, if you have someone who connects with you, who's also a mom of three, who lives in you know the Midwest, who you know you've overcome whatever it's you've overcome, and they relate to that, they're not going to go to the twenty-five-year-old fitness influencer who has two million followers. There's no personal connection there, right? They're going to go to you. And I think the that yes, the space is more saturated. But what I love about the saturation, it's really I just I think it's more sophisticated to be honest. Um, and the way that I think about it is the client to coach matching system is the most specific it's ever been. So you mentioned those uh, early trainers, you know, Tony Gentlecore, and uh, I guess John Berardi was part of that, and John Romanello, and some of these people who were writing and they were doing online training early. Back then, you didn't have a lot of people you could pick from. If you wanted to train with someone online, it was like, here's two dozen people, right? And that was it. Now you kind of show up and there's there's every kind of flavor you want right? There's every age, there's every demographic, there's every, I mean, any sort of life experience, vulnerability, success, struggle, whatever. And I love that. So that means that the people that you get in and the people you're working with are going to be perfect fits. It's going to be a lot easier. And the customer gets to pick the exact coach they want. And there's plenty to go around. And so I feel like that matching system has gotten so much more specific. You know, we forget, we always talk about there's more trainers online now than ever, but really there's more customers online now than ever. A lot of people, because of the pandemic, tried online solutions when they never would have. You hit on something huge there. The biggest obstacle to online coaching when you started, when it was a very, very you know, there's a tiny pocket of people doing it is most consumers did not think that this was an option. They, Hey, if I'm going to hire a trainer, it's going to be someone who's going to spend the time with me one-on-one -on -one in person. The idea of hiring a coach online outside of, I think the bodybuilding world, which I do think is kind yeah. of what originated yeah. it because yeah. oftentimes bodybuilding coaches would give the meal plans and the programs and the person yeah. would do it. But that really only started becoming an option to most people. I would say maybe six to seven years ago. And Jonathan Goodman's probably one of the mm -hmm. major forces in the in the push before the pandemic. Yep. And so when the pandemic hit, John's course was the only game in town. Now there's, of course, everybody else trying to play catch up sure. and do it too. But he saw a massive surge in interest sure. in thing, And then that, that got saturated. And then obviously he realized, wait a second, there we we got 10 years of customers within this space of here <laughs> it's not going to grow at this pace and honestly no it's going to fall off a cliff so we need to pivot and that's totally about that it, there's a boomerang for sure you know i'm glad that you brought that up because um number one 
I remember like people being like worried to put their credit card in. Like, you know, it was like that early where people were like, I don't know, is this going to be, is this, uh, is this a scam? You know, like a lot of that kind of stuff. I mean, we could talk about that. I feel like they're still alive and well, but um, that was really interesting. And I feel like with the pandemic, we saw a lot of people go back to the gym, you know, which obviously we kind of saw that we had a lot of trainers jump online and have fast success. So they were like, wow, I could just keep doing this. But what happened was their first launches or maybe second launches during 2020, 2021 did really well. And now the well is dried up, right? They don't have any people to sell to. Either people went back to the gym or they you know, already mopped up everyone who knows them, has already done the program. And so now they're seeing, and it was hard for, as a business coach, so a lot of people came in, they were a massive success and like so excited. And I never want to go back to the gym and I love this and I wonder if I can create it. But their audience hadn't caught up to where they were yet, like in terms of volume, they didn't have enough people to sell to. And so I was like, okay, if you really want to transition into now, this is going to be a real online, like you had a lot of fast success. Maybe it was a little bit of a false sort of, you know, like false sense of this is easy. And now they're kind of seeing, oh, if I really do want to transition long-term, I have to learn these business skills. And I really have to think about growing my audience and I got to be consistent on social and I'm not going to have the easier success that I was having in 2020 and 2021. And it's so weird to have these conversations because so many people had like terrible years those years, you know, but for online coaching and fitness business, I mean, like it's, it, I mean, I had to scale because I had no place to put clients. Like literally we had no, I was like, I've taken on one-on-one clients. I was at my, <laughs> I was literally on zoom eight hours a day, like most days of the week. And I was like, I just recreated the gym. Like I'm, I'm at the gym again, but it's my desk. And so I had to like really scale and figure out how to do that. And to your point, we're definitely having to continue to pivot to see where the space is going to go now, because it's, it's sort of back to, to where it was before. This has been one of my favorite conversations in a long time. So I hope everybody listening is liking it. One of the places we, we mentioned off air, and you've said the word, I think three times now, we were going to talk about this was scale. And so there's a whole, I've become far more interested in scale, maybe in say the last year. And this is also sort of a pitch for everybody going to raise the bar or any of the other events. There's more, almost more events than ever. I'm just announced that I'm rebooting my event for Edmonton in October. And I'm, uh, I've got okay. most of the lineup set. I'm going to work on a couple of things, but this is going to be dynamite. And with, I've been spending more time around literally sitting at the table or metaphorically at the table with people like Luca Hosovar, Don Saladino, Kelsey Heenan, who've become friends. They're, they're actually doing an event in, at Luca's gym in March, which I'm going to be attending, which is going to be dynamite. And Kelsey and Don, especially like you talk a lot about how they've scaled their online offerings. So Kelsey and Don, I mean, I Don for sure has a seven figure business and I wouldn't be shocked at all. I don't know exactly where Kelsey's is, but Kelsey and her husband, Dennis have a massive business and it's, it's delivery of programs and it's not the one-on-one -on -one thing. It's like, sure. Don trains Ryan Reynolds and Blake Lively one-on-one, -on -one, but he's actually stepped away from most of even training famous celebrities because he's channeled his time into creating challenges and an app and other things that have allowed him to scale the proverbial time for money. Mm -hmm. So what do you, what are your thoughts on scaling? What are your thoughts on encouraging coaches to first of all, start with an open mind about maybe getting away from only just doing that time for money hour on the floor. And it's not to say they have to abandon that, but to look at options to be able to build stuff that, can earn more money relative to the mm -hmm. amount of time I spend on it. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So I feel like people throw this word around quite a bit and don't really know exactly what it is. So scaling is essentially generating more revenue per time put in, right? So either decreasing the time you're, you're showing up or even maintaining it, but just bringing in more revenue. And one of the things I can tell you, because I do work with our main offer is a beginner to business program. It's called Fitness Business Accelerator, FBA. And a lot of people come into that and they're like, okay, how do I scale? And I'm like, but you have no clients yet. So I think you do have to slow your roll and there, and you'll know when the time is right to scale. I don't uh, encourage people to start with like, always start with a group offer. If it is going to be a group offer, maybe it's going to be like what I call a coaching pod, which is where it's like anywhere between, I don't know, three to 12 people paying something a little bit higher ticket than maybe an app, maybe a little bit lower ticket than one-on-one, but like similar goal sets, similar frustrations and struggles and almost curate the group, right? Let me find the right person for this group. It's kind of like a mentorship. Uh, The thing with Don or Kelsey or whatever, massive audiences, right? Massive audiences. So they can do volume. But for the average person who's just getting in as a trainer, they don't have a massive following. They can grow in over time, right? But they come in they're going to want to do higher ticket one-on-one for two reasons to start. Number one, it's the most time per like per dollar for what they're doing, right? So they just don't have that a big a big enough audience to grab. So it's like if they can make they can be making a six-figure income online with like 10 clients a month, right? So you think about it from that perspective, it's like that's the best way to begin. The second reason is because they need social proof. They need massive social proof to then, I guess, use the word earn, earn the right to put people into groups, from my estimation. It doesn't mean you can't start with groups, but you need to, if you're going to, they're probably going to be a little bit smaller, maybe a little bit more high ticket, uh, probably people you know, right? You're not going to want to do the worst thing you can do as a brand new online coach is to come out and be like doing a $10 a month app. Like, <laughs> good luck to you. Like, it's just, it's, you need so much volume for something something like that. So think to yourself, okay, can I start with one-on-one high ticket like and really get good at the transformation you're facilitating? So what is that? Is it weight loss, muscle gain, is it body composition, is it overcoming, uh, you know, bad relationship with food, whatever that is, get very clear and very specific on what you're delivering and become the go-to person for that thing. Once you do that and you sort of break through what I call this trust threshold where people go, oh, Andrew, he's the one who, or Jill, she's the one who does, like we want that almost one word familiarity, right? Like, oh, she's the one who has the, and you kind of want to get so good at becoming the go-to person for that thing. And this is what I think people miss. I think at some point you do need to overwhelm yourself with business to then earn the right to then put people into groups or earn the right to be more discerning about who you take on and things like that. And it's not to say you have to like suffer or anything like that. I'm not a big, like you don't need to martyr yourself out, but there's going to be a period of time where in order to, and it's hard because a lot of trainers come in and they're like broke, right? And they're like, I need cash. And I'm like, then you need to do high ticket one-on-one and get really good at that transformation and be the go-to person for that thing. And then over time you start to see, wow, my one-on-one coaching roster is now maxed out, right? We're at the point where we're overwhelmed to the point where the demand is so high that I can put people in other containers. And so at JillFit, we, when we talk about containers, we do, we use something called an Ascension model. And basically it's a customer journey. You've heard this before, where essentially we want people to start in one place. So if you can picture sort of like a pyramid, the bottom of the pyramid is our like first stop for people. So everything we do at JillFit, literally 
80, 90% of everything we do at JillFit is trying to tweak that offer all the time. We want as many people at the bottom of the pyramid as we possibly can. We don't even care about the, the, the higher ticket stuff. We don't care about that stuff because that's going to depend on how many people we have at the bottom. So the first offer we have is called FBA and it is a group program. It's six months coaching directly with me in a group. And it's usually we enroll about 150 people in this and we run it twice a year. And everything we do at JillFit is to get people into that program. That's it. Like the majority of people we want coming into that program. So we're tweaking our messaging. We're tweaking our lead magnet. We're tweaking our ads. We're tweaking all of this stuff. And our goal is to get as many people in that bottom tier as possible. It's a beginner to business program. And then... When people have gotten to a level of success or a level of proficiency or a level of revenue or a level of, um, I don't know, audience building or trust, then they are ready to potentially apply for the next container. And the next container is a program we have called Legacy. I run it with Shante Cofield, who's also going to be at Race the Bar. Um, and she and I run that together. And it's an intermediate plus business program. And we cap it at 20 to 30 entrepreneurs. And so my goal is to get as many people going through the FBA curriculum and then becoming a different business owner. Like that's the key. When we think about scaling, you want to think to yourself, how can I create aspirational steps for my clients to take the next one? Because then it doesn't even become a sale. Like the next level doesn't even become a sale. It just becomes like part of the trajectory, right? It just becomes part of their their unique um like you know Kendra, right? You know Kendra? Kendra Lahu? Do you know Kendra LaHue? Okay, I thought you did. Anyway, she she did FBA and then she graduated to Legacy. And then from there, if people are ready, we have a six-figure container called SNS or Strategy and Scale. And that's my mastermind. We kept that at 12 to 14 people. And so the idea is ideally, I would love as many people to come into that very bottom space, get changed as a business owner, have a level of success or proficiency, or whatever, and get ready for. And then those other tiers, like those higher ticket things, they're not even sales. They're literally like very chill wait list to an application. People put it on their vision board. Next year, I want to apply to legacy. Next year, I want to be in your mastermind. I'm going to be your mastermind two years from now. So like those things aren't even sales. So when we think about scaling, it's really important that you have an aspirational customer journey to keep people in your ecosystem for as long as possible. Our goal is that most of our clients will do a minimum of two of our programs, right? And we have like low ticket stuff, right? Like beginner, like more self-paced stuff. And that's sort of, we call it the runway. That's sort of like the bottom. But really, if you think about scaling, you have to be... Um, because at some point you need people to stay for longer and you need them to pay higher price points, right? And so those, when we think about lifetime value, we think about uh, longevity or viability of the business, you need to set up next stops for people and give them those next steps. And so I hope that sort of answers the question. That's sort of what we start with. And honestly, when you think about what you have to do day to day in your business, just get people in the bottom. Because then as they move up the chain or they move up the journey or they move up the ascension model, it's not even a sale. It's actually fairly easy because you've mapped it out for them. And people want to be led. I want to go to the next level or, and people are becoming a different person. So if you think about this from a trainer's perspective or a nutrition perspective or whatever, I have a lot of clients who their ascension model is their bottom of the ascension model is like a macro coaching program, right? It's like, that's a great place to start people. People come in, they're more beginners to nutrition. They don't really know what's in the food they're eating. They don't know portion sizes. They don't you know what know what a macro is and know what's in their food. And then they start tracking and they start adjusting and they maybe have a goal or maybe they do some diet planning. And then at the end of it, they're like, I don't want to count anymore. So maybe the next rung up would be like an intuitive eating program, right? So you need to give people places to go. 
And to me, that's really what scaling is about is like, how can we keep increasing our prices and keep people in the ecosystem for longer? Because, you know, if you have someone come in and you have a $10 a month membership or even a $50 a month membership, average fitness memberships, three to four months. So you're looking at it like, even if I have a $49 a month membership and someone stays in for four months, I'm making $200 total from that person versus you could put something in place where there's something that's a higher buy-in and then they stay because they get better results even. So we're constantly thinking about how can we deliver the absolute best product here? Because if they get better results, they're going to want to stay in our ecosystem for longer. You, There's something embedded in all this. And I think when you talked about your ascension, uh, your, I like the word aspiration. And I think that was the key. I got excited when you said that. And a lot of what I think about with scale where people need to start is they need to identify and start to shift the limiting beliefs about the little boxes that we get put in when we start at the commercial gym. And I think it starts with, and I think your, your system actually does a wonderful job is it shows people, Hey, here are the options. Here's something to aspire to. And I actually like how you have something. I think it's actually really responsible and it's not over promising people with this. Hey, you could do what someone like Don does. It's, let's make sure that you have the foundation, the fundamentals, but then let's give you something to aspire to that you can work toward that suits you along your journey. And for me, I know, and, and I find that like, I'll listen to a lot of audiobooks, and you get these people who are like, well, you should only read a few books. You have to memorize everything. It's like, mm, <laughs> that's kind of silly, but I like being exposed to a lot of different ideas and I let them just kind of like seep into my brain. And sometimes I know when I'm ready for, a mindset shift. And one of those things is looking for media books and be around people who are just thinking, as I said, larger scale. And then I'm assimilating those pieces as I'm ready, as they fit me authentically. Yep. But it's rooted in discarding beliefs that I had and the identity as the, oh, I'm just the on the floor trainer, because now I'm doing so much more than that. And I'm, I'm excited and I'm enjoying the journey. And then by surrounding myself with people and who are actively seeking out to spend time with me or choosing to sure. want to include me in things who are doing things that I think, Hey, I, me before I'm like, Oh, I would never do that. That would never be me. Now all of a sudden I'm open-minded to say, well, I see, I see the path that I, and I think that could be really appealing. And I mean, I still don't think I'll ever be a Don, right? I don't, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to try training, you know, all these Hollywood celebrities. Don is a unique individual. And it's important that we don't look at Don and think if we don't achieve that, could do that. Failure, right? right, exactly. And, you know, you, you made a good point of just saying like, you know, and what you just, what you're really describing to me, it sounds like mentorship. It really does. It sounds like who is doing what I want to be doing. You know, I gave you the example of Rachel. And I really think that that's, if you're looking to scale, you have to get in the rooms with people who are doing it well, you know? And so that's, I hired um, a mentor. I work with James Wedmore and he's in the internet business space. He's not really in the fitness space. Uh, I, I signed up with him last year and I just re-upped for two years ago. And this is my third year with him because he has a similar business model, right? He's doing, you know, courses and coaching programs and stuff like that. And we just talked about one of the ways to scale, which was how can we bring more revenue in, right? How do we have these containers that are higher ticket and keep people in our ecosystem for longer, whatever. The other part of scaling is taking your time away, right? So you can increase revenue and or decrease the time that you're putting into the business. So let's just say your revenue stays the same from one year to the next, but you're working half the hours. To me, that's scaling. And so how can you also remove yourself a little bit more from the business. Now, I'll always have a personal brand. I'll always be Jill Fit. That's just going to be, that's going to be the business. 
but I started hiring more executive team members last year. And as someone who was sort of a glorified solopreneur and liked being that for such a long time, um, I told you I was an autonomy trap. I told you about my Zoom eight hours a day for five days a week. So I was like, wow, the thing I started my business for, which was autonomy, right? And flexibility and whatever, I had created a prison of my own making by taking on all these clients again. And so I realized that anyone could take anything off my plate. And I think, you know, especially for us who are more driven or whatever, sometimes you feel scary to like give over something in your business, which is I think partially why I didn't hire for so long. I was like, they can't do it as well. They won't care about the business. There's going to be mistakes. I can just do it faster. I can do it better. I made all those excuses. The truth is that probably is true. Like at the end of the day, I'm not going to miss much, right? Because it's, it is everything to me. But what I noticed was, and is when I scale, and the reason why I hired James was because that dude works like one hour a day. I literally asked him like, how, well, how much do you work? He's a one hour a day. His team basically runs, it's like a machine. It like, it runs the entire thing. He's not micromanaging people. I was picturing giving people like task lists, right? Giving them to-do lists and micromanage them and like watching and checking their work. And I was like, I don't want that. I'd rather make way less money and just be able to go to Australia for three weeks and no one bother me, right? But the way that we've grown the team and we use a system uh, called, it's, have you heard of Rocket Fuel and Traction by Gino Wickman? Yes, I have. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Gina Wickman wrote these two books and that's the system that we use at Drill Fit for the team building. It's rocket fuel where there's like sort of two people at the helm. There's the visionary and then there's what's called the integrator. Now the integrator, you're not going to find that on like upwork.com or indeed.com. It's going to be more of like a project manager, head of operations, whatever. And so basically the way we have it set up at Jillfit is I'm the visionary. And by the way, I was doing the integrator stuff too for a long time, right? I was the admin. I was the doing all the things. But now when you are in the visionary role, it really frees you up to like operate in your zone of genius. Where are we going? What are our goals? The programming, the content creation, the coaching, right? All of the IP is me, but the integrator comes behind me and just makes it all happen. So oftentimes they know what's going on in the business even more than I do, right? I'm kind of like, they're like, okay, Jill, we need these videos for the sales page. Okay, Jill, we need this, you know, give us the edits on this thing. So like oftentimes I, they're much more proactive it's not like a VA. It's not like you go out and you find someone in the Philippines that you have to give a task list to. This is like these people are enrolled in the vision. They're full-time. They're proactive. I never thought that was possible, right? I was like, these people aren't going to care about my business as much as me. They do. And we have a really cool like compensation model in place where like if the pot, whole pie gets bigger, their slice gets bigger. So it's finding ways. This has been a completely new skill set for me, Andrew, like totally new skill set the last two years. And it's not like 100% dialed in, but we're getting there. And now I'm like, wow, we increased the revenue at Jillfit 70%. We see a lot more money going out. But I'm like, I, I would never have been able to do that if it was just me. And I think a lot of people, and you'll know when the time is right. Like I told you, I was ready. Anyone can take anything off my plate, right? Like you'll know when the time is right. Well, this speaks to me because I definitely have <laughs> in that autonomy trap too. And it's, mm -hmm. it's and this goes this goes to what I was saying before about exposing yourself to ideas and people that will challenge those limiting beliefs because- okay. It rarely works as someone just says to you, no, you have to do this differently. You almost left, have to let this stuff marinate in your yeah. brain until you're ready to embrace it. And that's an ongoing thing with me. But I've also come to realize like I can't do it all. So a couple of thoughts here. Yep. One is I've started to outsource certain tasks. For example, a couple of years ago, I hired uh, a well-referred guy to build my website for me. I don't have that skill. He's done a wonderful job. He's great. Uh, I, at some point... I had a, a young client, young trainer named Bailey Lau, who's been wonderful. We actually have a second podcast 
dedicated to our online women's group program. So we have a group oh. offer. And it was a really cool opportunity to take someone who I thought, you know, very, very mature, fitness, young fitness professional, create an opportunity for her, uh, create this entity. And it's it's a piece of infrastructure that we're building and scaling. And it actually did really good as a side project in year one. It's created a, you know, an extra revenue stream for her and, and a little bit for me. So then oh. I've taken my web developer to build out the website for that. I've hired a young coach just to do a bunch of video, video editing for me. And I need yep. to do more, more of that. And I'm starting... A, a friend of mine does really good apparel work. So I had him do some apparel stuff for me cool. and I've gotten open to the idea of using other people who are very skilled instead of trying to do all these things that I don't have the time or the, the, the money bandwidth to do bandwidth it for, for doing it. Totally. So, and it's part of the process there, but I've definitely got this block about hiring employees. And I think we also get this idea too, that, well, you're hiring employees, you're hiring other trainers to work under your umbrella, which as you said, we're worried about the level of quality or what if they leave and oh, all yeah. that stuff. And I also don't necessarily think that hiring another other employees is for everyone. I right. really don't think it's for everyone, but I think we have to start looking at it as this is an option if we want to scale business. The other thing I was going to throw in there that you're welcome to, to put some thoughts out there, but I, I just want to sprinkle it in because there's a lot of chatter about it is we probably need to keep an open mind about uh chat GPT, the AI oh, yeah. that's oh, going to yeah. blow up. And I know Alex Hermosi did a really thoughtful video about it. Jonathan Goodman just did a video about it. It will affect our industry in a fairly significant way as time goes on. Yep. And a lot of people might be afraid, well, it's going to replace trainers. Well, no, it's actually going to be a really good way to scale your ability to create content. And you will have to spend your time on as, as Alex says it, you know, uh, quality analysis over the whole process. So yep. you're welcome to yeah. share your thoughts on that, or we can sure. just that as a, something people need to be more alert to. Yeah. I mean, I definitely, it's on my radar for sure. Shantae did a pretty in-depth podcast episode about it as well, uh, which is great. Um, and I think that you have to embrace this, like everything else that you embrace as the space changes, right? I think it's just like you pivot, you iterate, and we're going to see the people who are willing to, to figure out how. And at the end of the day, I don't think it's, it's not going to take your job because people are always going to want to connect with people. So that that idea that like, oh, this robot's going to do my job better than me, they might actually write better copy than you. Like that's <laughs> that's a real thing. But that does free you up to do the things that don't scale, to be the personal connection, to be uh, on the Zoom calls, to have the, the conversations, right? To be in the DMs, like to actually have a real face-to-face -face conversation with somebody. So that kind of stuff is not going to scale. Now, I will say with the business stuff, what I would encourage most people to to think about, and this is this is a massive problem in our space, I feel like, which is that most people are not managing their energy well as they grow their business, right? So for example, when I told you the first two years at JillFit, I was still working in the gym full time and get home from work at like eight or nine o'clock at night, then like write programs, then blog. And I was doing essentially two jobs, right? It's unsustainable. And I feel like, especially as trainers, we there's a lot of I feel like lack in our space, like a lot of just sort of, sort of scarcity in our space, especially in the gym business, right? Gym owners are worried that trainers are leaving and taking their clients, and trainers are worried that their clients are leaving all the time, and you know they're gonna have no money and and all these kind of things, and that's certainly where I was, and so we take on more because we think if we just work more, we make more money, which to a certain degree that does work, right? Okay, I'm taking more clients, I make more money. And it's nice having some resources that you can put back into it. That's what 2020 did for JillFit. It's like, oh, we have a shitload of resources now that we can now put into hiring the right people and spending time and, and afford to take a step back, take two steps forward. But you have to think about what is it costing you 
as a coach, a content creator, you know, like, I mean, this content creation shit is, it's a different way of thinking. It's a different way of working than being in the gym, just seeing clients, right? You need time. I call it time padding. It's not the 20 minutes it takes to write a caption or, you know, a post. It's the time around the time to think and to listen to books and all the things that you were talking about. And so really it's not about time management. It's about energy management. I can tell you from a scaling perspective, when you have, because part of scaling is just we have more butts in seats, right? We just have more people in our programs that need attention. I am so like, like just, uh, what's the word? I'm so like, uh, I can't think of the word, but like on needing to be present and protect my energy, like all the time. So I do like weekly calls with my FBA group. Those calls will go two, three hours every single week. Every single week they go two, three hours. It would be a disservice to them if I came in drained. I can't. I absolutely cannot come in drained. And so this is where you get to like, where are my energetic leaks as a business owner? So for example, if an FBA, we have a weekly call on Tuesdays and someone DMs me a quick question in between calls, like I don't answer that question, not because I want to be a dick or anything like that. Number one, it's like, hey, we meet every single week. Like, so this, this is a great question. You can wait till Tuesday, right? Nothing is that immediate. And the second thing is that's a, a tiny energetic drain. It's a t- it is one thing, right? I could be like, oh, I'll just answer it real quick. Not a big deal. But over and over and over again. And then before you know it, I have half the group DMing me between calls, right? And so it's that those small energetic leaks. And Brenda Burchard is like really good at this. He talks a lot about focus and presence. It has become so much more important to me as I've scaled to like really protect my energy, not because I don't want to be giving and all that kind of stuff, but like it would be massively unfair to my clients for me to show up drained to our containers, for me to be irritated, resentful, you know, all annoyed, right? Impatient on these calls. I've been on calls with coaches that are impatient. That's the worst feeling. Or they, or they, you know, make their people feel bad for asking a question or whatever. I show up to these like fully present. And part of that is having team to answer emails and to write sales pages and to draft sales emails and some all the stuff I used to do. I still come on and put my like last two cents on it, right? I'll still like sprinkle my own stuff at the very end of it, but my team gets my our stuff to like 80%. And that takes so much off my plate so I can show up with the client facing things that no one else in the business can do. This is essential. I mean, every trainer, even if maybe you're not at the scale that you're describing, Every trainer still needs to manage the simple things like your own workouts, your sleep, and your nutrition, because there's a big difference totally. in a client's experience one-on-one in front of you. And that's been important to me for years. I know lots of trainers who actually struggle with, honestly, alcohol, right? Mm. Lifestyle stuff with that. And I mean, I got a couple of buddies. They both traveled to see me speak at the IFCA event. And Lane Norton, Jordan Syed, and Bedros were all there. It was a really cool event. And th- these two guys in particular have had pretty dramatic turnarounds of what's going on with them because they, and they're open about the fact, one in particular really brands around it, but just kind of getting the alcohol out of their lives. Mm-hmm. And it's such a drain, it, it's a massive it's, drain. It skills everywhere. And then you're really talking about a lot of boundaries and a lot of different things. And I, I recently had a post and I tagged Sohi in it and, and Dr. John Berardi. Uh, there's a handful, Molly Galbraith. And there are people who really forward facing show and live the boundaries that they place around how much access people have to them, like you described. Uh, some of them create a lot of media, like Brett Bartholomew. There's a fair bit of media around how he, uh, you know, building your value system and all these mm-hmm. sort of things. And I actually want trainers to pay yep. more attention because yep. I know for me, 
a lot of the things that resonate with me are the things that I'm kind of up against the edges of, which is something I'm up against the edges. <laughs> because I spent yeah. the last three years leaning hard into Instagram, building that while writing exploded, while doing all this stuff, while coaching full-time, building online stuff. And then all of a sudden public speaking stuff erupted at the same time. So my ability to respond to everything, it really pushes my limits in terms of the mental energy that it's exactly as you described it. And anybody listening, if you're feeling this stuff, well, Hey, this is why we get you to go and, and follow Jill and obviously listen to podcasts like this. So let's conclude. But I love that you, and I don't want people to miss this. What you just described was, is a growth phase, right? And so like, you know, that when you're in a growth phase, Number one, you know it's transient, right? It's like, okay, I can't keep up this pace, right? I'm going to maximize it while it's here and people want my attention and whatever. I'm going to maximize it. But I also know, realize I can't keep going at this pace. And so I don't want people to miss that. The second thing you said is like, you're at the point now where you might need some help in some of these things because I hate to word this, this use this word again, but you earn the right to, right? The demand has been there. So we've seen the opposite too. I remember I had this client uh, years ago, a business client. It was a young guy. He was certified. I mean, he was like right out of his certification. He wanted to build his online business. Maybe like 22, 23 years old. And I remember I was like, okay, so let's get, you know, let's talk about when you're going to take clients, whatever. And he goes, well, Every morning I have a morning routine and I go for a, like a walk and I get my own workout in and then I usually like meditate and whatever. And he was like, so I don't want to take clients in the morning. And I was like, dude, you have no clients. You just take clients whenever. Like <laughs> you can't be that picky, right? So I do think that there is this time period where you do say yes to everything. Like say yes to everything. You know, don't be discerning at all. Be like, yeah, let me try that. I'll be there. Sure, I'll show up. Like don't be discerning. Just say yes because you're going to learn number one, you're going to learn so much as a result of that, right? Like yes, I I like doing that or oh, I don't want to do that again or oh, I want to do more of that. But the second thing is you will increase demand to the point where you can put boundaries in place because they're warranted. What you just described is like this is blowing up. This is blowing up. This is blowing up. Now I have to, now I really have to get discerning. Now I have to figure out a solution for this. But Chante always says, she goes, don't worry about being too rich until you're rich. And I'm like, yes, that's, it's like the best thing to, to remember, get to the point where you need to, to figure out a solution, right? Get to that point, get to the point of success before you need to figure out a solution. I got a buddy and he said this, and I love this quote. You get, you get so many young trainers that are worried about burnout and i know that's kind of a thing that we're <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Younger, you and i are just a tiny bit we're, we're jet yeah a little older a different mindset completely but with my, my buddy said don't worry about burnout worry about not starving right <laughs> First. Yeah. Right. Like here's the thing. You can always go back, right? You can always say no. You can always turn down clients. You can always put boundaries in place after the fact. Don't worry about being too rich until you're rich. <laughs> it's so good. So I, you know, I know you're going to deliver a killer talk at raise the bar. So let's, let's plug the event. Cause Nick lamb and Jeff yeah, yeah. done a wonderful job putting together what I think is the best lineup I've ever seen. And Rachel Cosgrove is part of that lineup too. I'm excited. Was part of it. So why should people come and see us all talk there? And I love this because honestly, live events are what I consider to be a one percenter action, meaning so many people don't go. And what I've experienced, and I host like about seven live events a year myself and then go to them, obviously. And to me, my business trajectory, and I think you did a post on Facebook like last week or the week before about like nothing has been more impactful for you than live events. Yes. Same thing. 
same thing. All of my best entrepreneurial friends, all of my uh, business partners, I've met at live events. Danny Jane and I have our podcast together. We met at 2013. We were both speaking at the same event. Uh, I met Nagar Fanuni, Jen Sinclair in 2012 at a yoga retreat. We went on to do quarter million dollars in our live events for Radiance Retreat. After that, um, you know, all of my sort of closest business, Shantae and I are now business partners. We met at a live event. And so, I do think it's so rare that people come because the, it's so easy to not come. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I got to get childcare, which I, I don't want to put like, I do think are valid quote unquote excuses, but especially if you're an in-person trainer, right? You're losing whatever money you had, whatever clients you had coming that day. You don't get that revenue. It's childcare, it's travel expenses, it's accommodations, it's the ticket, it's all of those things, but it's all so worth it. And that's why I always, when someone makes the time and makes the effort and shows up, to me, that's everything because I'm just like, it's so easy not to come. It's a 1% interaction. But what's really interesting about it, and I'm sure you've had this experience, it's one of those things that if someone's never gone to a live event, they don't see the value. But the second they go to one live event and have a great experience, they're like, oh, I'll never not come. It's just one of those things that it's so much easier to quote unquote sell coming to the live event after you've been to one. Then you're like, oh, I get it. And yes, I will never not be in the room again. And so if you're on the fence and you're thinking to yourself, well, I'll catch the next one, be that one percenter person who's going to figure it out because it will be worth so much more. And it's not even about the talks are going to be great. It's going to be about the connection. It's going to be about the networking. It's going to be about everything that happens not during the talk that you're going to leave feeling so filled up, so excited to go back to your business or to your clients and deliver massive value to them because you're in the room with people who are movers and shakers. Here's the thing. If you live in like, you know, a small town, you probably don't know anyone doing what you're doing, but you get in these rooms and you're like, wow, everyone understands this language. Every you feel so connected and you're going to meet people that shit, Danny Jane are still business partners. We're like 11 years later, 2 million downloads in our podcast. Like it's massive opportunity, but you have to be open to it. Everything you just described. Uh, nothing has ever so been good. impactful on my career. And I didn't set out seeking public speaking opportunities. I just started showing up at these events. My first one was at Kansas City Fitness Summit 2017. I met Sohi yep. there. Yep. Met so many great people. And I just kept going to these events and going to these events. And then I meet, and it's not even about meeting the people who are speaking, it's no. about a person who's just like you on the same journey who these people have inspired me with the cool stuff they're doing. It's broken me out of com my comfort zone, out of rigid box thinking. And then something really weird happened. If you do aspire to this, um, I remember that first event, I met two guys who became friends of mine, added them to social media, my friend Tim Art, my friend Jeff Aker. And turns out each of them hosted their own event. Tim, an event in Spokane. So I went in 2018. And uh, Jeff, uh, the NSCA Provincial Clinic here in Alberta. Cool. So I attended each in 2018, each in 2019. And then come the next time after the pandemic blew through, uh, I had my media blown up. I'd been running for a whole bunch of stuff. And each of them asked me to come and speak at their events, which blew the doors open to a lot more invitations. Raised the bar last year. I attended because this is a dynamite lineup. I got to know Nick. I got to know Derek. Nick had me on in his uh, online virtual summit. And I put myself in a position where there's a very limited lineup. And a lot of people were begging to get into this. And I was one of the first people they said, we need to have you here. I went down. I immersed myself in it last year. Go to these events, not because you're being transactional and thinking. Yes. You know, it, it don't ask where I'm rebooting my event. I mean, I have so many people I would love to have in that event. And I have limits. And 
I'm trying to prioritize Canadian speakers for October. And I've gotten a lot of requests. Hey, can I come speak? Can I come speak? And it's just like, and I understand where it's coming from because people are thinking, well, this will be really good for their career if they get in the lineup. But it's like, but is it actually what's going to be the best thing for the event? The best thing for you is to show up, meet people, immerse yourself in it. Don't think about the status you'll gain from speaking in the event. Think about just the interpersonal connectivity and the benefits. So guys, but you I- can't go with that, right? Like you can't go with the idea of like, I'm going to meet the person who's going to tr- like, who's going to skyrocket my career. That's not how it works. When you said, use the word transactional, that's exactly right. I think a lot of people go into these events going, oh, I hope I meet, like you said, the speaker. I hope I get to, you know, cause you follow them online or whatever. And you kind of look up to them in some way, shape or form. I remember like first time I introduced myself to Rachel in 2009, I was like shaking. Like I was like, oh my God. I, and now we're like friends. We go snowboarding together and stuff like that. But like, you know, it's one of those things where you have to go in looking at it as a long game. You know, it's not just you go to one event and you're like, oh, it didn't produce a million dollars. Then you know, you're not going to go back to another one. You have to look at it like being open to where could this potentially go? And it's not like you meet someone, you're like, oh, let's start a podcast together. Let's do this thing together. It's like you meet someone and you start following on social and you start, you know, talking to them, you know, in the DMs. And like, it's just this more organic development of a relationship. You know, Shantae and I have our program together now, but we met for the first time in 2018 at a live event. And then I invited her to speak at one of my events. And then we ran our first event together in 2019. And then like it just, and then over time, it was like 2020, this pandemic, you want to do this thing together. And now it's, it's a massive piece of both of our businesses, you know, but it's, that was what, four years. Right. And so you can't be like, is it time yet? Are we, are we making a million dollars yet? It literally needs to be long tail relationships. That's the only way it works and organic relationships, I will say. So a lot of people that in the fitness industry, you assumed that you would connect with and you just don't vibe with. And it's not a bad thing, good thing. They're, they're some way, you're some way. It's just more like, oh, we're not, we're not going to probably, you know, create something together. We're not going to, maybe we're not, maybe I'll have my podcast, but it's not going to be a massive fit. And you have to be open to that too. And just be like, cool, who do I organically connect with? Who would I love to hang out with? And then just, you know, be normal human. Don't try and be like, how can I add value? How can I speak at your event? Like, it's too transactional. Like you said, you have to have a long tail relationship. You and I agree on this philosophy perfectly. You're probably out of time. I'm going to let you go to your next thing. We had to move this hour up, an hour early anyway. Jill, you were wonderful. It's one of my favorite episodes in a really long time. Everybody listening, please go follow Jill. This is what you're going to get more of if you're plugged into Jill's media. Come hang out with us at Raise the Bar, please. If you are... Finding this episode through Jill's media, scroll through my episodes. Jill's been a previous guest. I've had Sohi Lee and a lot of other people, Molly Galbraith, who you guys will love. And thank you for tuning in. If you're a longtime listener, I really appreciate having you here. I've got more great episodes coming up. Thank you, Jill. Thank you.